just a couple announcements before we get into John chapter 7 today. We will be doing communion during the sermon today. So if you did not get a communion cup, raise your hand and the deacons are going to respond and get those to you right away. So keep those up, little cup, COVID-friendly, right? So if you could get one of those, uh, make sure you have those. We do practice open communion here at Grace, which means if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can take communion with us. You do not have to be a member of this church. So if you're a guest here today and your faith is in Jesus, we encourage you to join with us today. Everybody got it? Okay, great. Secondly, I'd like to announce that last week we mentioned the Honduras ministry um, there with Chuck and Joyce down in uh, the orphanage down in Honduras. And we were able to get sponsors for most of the kids. We thought we had them all, but uh, I think some of the cards disappeared with partial uh, commitments. And so we have about four or five more kids that need sponsorships. And then also we have extra cards if you just like to grab a card to pray for a, a child or just do a partial sponsor, that would be great. But a full sponsor is $125, and that provides their uniforms and, and the things they need to go to school this year. And so I hope that you'll participate in that if God leads you to do so. So Honduras, and you can just see the welcome card on your way out. The cards will be there. And also, um, Tiffany, um, will you be over there as well with maybe Celeste? And that'll be great to, uh, to help people with that. And then finally... Um, if you've, unless you've been in a cave, you know that the world, especially in Eastern Europe, is a mess right now with Ukraine. And we have a special connection over there because our own Alex Umfric, Charlie and Rhonda's son, he is from the Ukraine, Ukraine, adopted from the Ukraine. And he actually went back, if you saw the prayer request, he went back to Ukraine. He's in Poland right now, but actually helping with Ukrainian refugees as they're pouring across the border. And so we have a unique opportunity to be able to make a, an impact, a difference, like in a very, very quick and tangible way. So what's going to happen is Rhonda and Charlie have said that Alex can use their credit card to pick up all the supplies that we can fund. And so he is able to literally go, swipe his card, get the stuff that's needed, and, and just bring it to ground zero there and help with people with it. But we, the, the church needs to help out with this and come alongside them. And so whatever we can do, dollar for dollar, there's no shipping, there's no transportation. It's just straight into the country to help refugees. And so I hope you'll consider being part of that. Next week, you can give to that. During the middle of the week, the app will change where the Honduras mission, you can pick the Honduras mission, and we'll change that to Ukraine. And then also, we'll also provide some opportunities next week, and we'll mention more about that. So just be praying about that, thinking about that. Uh, you can just write a check today and drop it in the box if you are interested in doing it. I mentioned last week about an opportunity for ministry, uh, a recovery ministry. And a recovery ministry is a ministry that comes alongside those who are beat down in life, maybe experiencing uh, addiction, problems with addictions in their life. And it's an opportunity to come alongside and encourage, support, mentor, help. And I, I threw it out there as an opportunity for anyone who feels drawn to that to sign up uh, and, and to be a part of that or come and see me. And, and just we had some responses for that. It's great. Some people were inquiring about it. But the truth is we all at some level struggle with guilt, shame, lack of joy, abuse, grief, anger, and fear, and those type of things. We all at some level, ever since the fall that's talked about in Genesis chapter 3, ever since the fall, we've lived under this 
sin that has caused us not to live the way that God originally intended. This perfect peace that he should have provided, he did provide in the garden, but sin broke that perfect relationship with God. And as a result of that, only one person since the fall has lived in perfect peace and harmony with God, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why we're looking at his life, we're studying his life, and we want to see how he lived his life. And so scripture teaches us that even though we live in this broken world, we live in these broken bodies, and it's going to be difficult, we're going to encounter adversity at every turn. In fact, Romans 8 talks about how that we're groaning, our bodies are growing, we're groaning for redemption of these bodies. Scripture tells us that we can experience victory. And, he, and Scripture talks about living by faith in the Son of God, a verse I quote often, Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how that we as Christians, as believers, are being progressively changed into the Christ's glorious image, that we're being transformed. And so that's happening. That's not something that you have to willpower to do. That's something that Scripture says is happening if you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you're a true believer, you're being conformed into the image of Christ, that his glory is changing you. But we are in this real battle. And so in today's text, we're going to see Jesus model what it means to live with faith, even in the midst of this world and its craziness. And we'll also see the other response, which is fear. And there's illegitimate fear, which is rooted in our self-preservation. We're trying to preserve ourselves. Or we can live by faith in God's sovereignty, that he's king, he's in charge, and I'm not. And I have to submit to his control, his plan, his timetable, and his will. So we're going to see this in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. So let's pray, and we'll look at this passage of Scripture. Father God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is in each believer here today, God. And while we want the words to be encouraging, we want them to be spoken with passion, because how can we not speak them with passion? God, at the end of the day, it's not my job to awaken hearts. And God, I pray if there are people here, their hearts are far from you this morning, or they're just not in sync with your spirit, God, right now that they'll confess that so that your word can do its work and that you can use today to change them and they can take one step further to be more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, God. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So after this, all right, if you were here during many, many messages in John chapter 6, after this was all the stuff that happened in that chapter. Everything that we saw, which ended in the fact that it got so tough, it got so difficult, that many of the people who claimed to be Jesus' disciples turned and left him for good. They would no longer walk with him because it was too hard. They said, we don't get it. We don't understand eat his flesh, drink his blood. All right, we don't want any part in that. And so they abandoned Jesus. They quit on Jesus. He was too radical. So for the next six or seven months, verse 1 tells us that Jesus went about in Galilee. 
Now, you may wonder, okay, it doesn't say six or seven months. How do we know that it was six or seven months? Well, it kind of does, all right? Here in verse 2, look at verse 2. It says that the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacle, was at hand. So this feast was about to take place, but back in chapter 4, I mean chapter 6, which chapter 6 only lasted two or three days total, chapter 6, verse 4 says that Passover was at hand. And so chapter 6 takes place when the Passover is near, and then we have the Feast of Booths six or seven months later because Passover is in the spring, the Feast of Tabernacles is in October. So what's been going on with Jesus for six or seven months? It says he's walked in Galilee. He spent his time in Galilee. Well, it's great that people like John MacArthur have taken the Bible, the Gospels, and harmonized the accounts by looking at all four and then harmonizing what the sequence is, what's going on. And so if you look at all the Gospels, and I really advocate, if you're a serious Bible student, to get the book One Perfect Life. And thank you, Charles, for giving me this book. I mean, I've used it so much since you gave it to me. But this book harmonizes the Gospels. And so we see here all the things that went on between chapter 6 and chapter 7. All these things where Jesus stayed in the Galilean region. He's there. He's walking about. He's doing work. Now, he does keep a relatively low profile during this time. He stays out of the major cities. And he focuses, focuses in mostly on teaching, although he does do miracles. And during this time period, we also have the major event of the transfiguration. For some reason, John chooses not to give us this account. And then he, very importantly, he tells his disciples during this that he's going to die. He tells them that he will die. Of course, they don't get it. So John 6 is really a turning point in Jesus' ministry. People start leaving. His popularity begins to go down. It begins to decrease. And the conflict with the religious establishment of the days just ratchets up. It escalates. It gets a lot worse. And verse 1 tells us they're determined to kill him. They're determined to kill him. So for six or seven months, Jesus avoids going into Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located. That's where the temple is. That's where the religious authorities would be housed and found in the majority of those. Even though Jesus does have followers there, he stays away because they're determined to kill him. But verse 2 says, now the Jews begin to go and they begin to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It was at hand. So each year, every Israelite male was required to make the track to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. I'll tell you more about what that is over the next few weeks. But Jesus avoids going to Jerusalem during the six or seven months period. And Jesus, it's important to recognize and know, and we know this here, okay? It wasn't because of fear that Jesus wouldn't go. Jesus did not go because it was not his time. He was following the Father's timetable. And it was not the time for him to go and to die. They're after him. They want to kill him. And so he has told his disciples he's going to die. But he's working off of the Father's plan. He's submitting to the will of the Father. So as I said, as Jewish law requires, the males must go into Jerusalem to celebrate. So let's go to verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. 
if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So these brothers here, these are the half-brothers of Jesus. These are actually blood-related his brothers. And so they don't believe that he is the Messiah. And so they're pressuring him, really even challenging him, saying, if you're really who you claim to be, if you're really the Messiah, go make it public. Go. Why are you hanging out here in backwoods Galilee for? All right, Jerusalem's where it happens. Jerusalem is where you can be authenticated. Go to Jerusalem. Don't stay here. What are you doing, Jesus? You need to go make the big impact if you are who you say you are. Now, we don't know if they're being sarcastic. Probably are. But we don't know exactly the tone here. But clearly, they're pressuring Jesus, and they want him to go. But his purpose is not their purpose, and his purpose will not, he won't be swayed or pressured even by his own family. Jesus is operating out of faith. And while they may think that it's fear, it's faith. He knows that his good, all-wise, and loving Father has a plan. And he's willing to trust that. God's plan to send Jesus to earth to rescue humanity to his brothers, to the religious establishment of the day, to his critics, and maybe even many of his followers, most of his followers, are going to think, that Jesus' mission is a failure. Until three days later, right? They're going to see him put on the cross, and they're going to say, I guess he was never who he claimed to be, was he? But God always has a way of showing up. Just baby dedication today. What an amazing, amazing moment for the cells. God gives us what we need for his glory. And he won't give us more than we can handle. But sometimes it looks like the waiting for him. And we're like, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And that's what many people experienced when Jesus was put to death. And that's what you and I often experience in our lives. When God doesn't come through the way that we think he should come through. But we wait. We know that Sunday is coming, right? And so we find ourselves often frustrated when God doesn't do something on our timetable. When we think that it should happen and it doesn't happen, and we question the goodness of God. But to follow Jesus means giving up control of our timetable and our purposes in our life. John writes in 1 John, by this we may know that we are his we are in him whoever says he abides in jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked and how did jesus walk he walked in faith he walked trusting that his father was good loving and sovereign and he trusted god's timetable and so jesus lived for the will of the Father. He said this clearly back in chapter 5. I only do what I see the Father doing. If the Father does it, I do it. He's responding to the will of the Father. And we're to walk the way that Jesus walked. We're to live the way that Jesus lived. My plans change. How do, how do you deal with that? When plans change, things get altered. How do you, how do you deal with that? Are you, are you what they call a control freak? All right, Are you? 
Ask your spouse, okay? Ask your spouse, am I a, am I a control freak? And then sign up for marriage mentoring immediately after that, okay? Because <laughs> you're needed, all right? We want to be in control. We do. We want to be in control. But here's the thing. With kids, we can see it. My daughter uh, hit a deer. She says the deer hit her, okay? So she hit a deer. She took the car to the body shop, and they begin to make the inspection. They say, well, we can see the obvious damage here, right? We can see what's apparent. But we really have to start removing parts off of the car to see the full damage. Because almost always, there's damage underneath. So when things don't go our way, we may not be like our children who literally throw a fit, like lay on the floor and pout and cry and roll around. Maybe you do, but, but most of you probably don't. We don't do those things, but what we do is it's under the hood. It's, it's behind the scenes. You pull the stuff away, and it's your mind here that shows what you really feel and think about God. And the thing is, we don't know. We don't know what's going on up there, right? You do. And so while when God throws a curveball, when he throws a wrench into your plans or into your dreams or into your schedule, you're like, oh, God's good. He's got it. Romans 8.28, yeah, he's got it. But inside you're saying, God, it's not the way it should go, right? What are you doing? Do I even believe in you? And we begin to question God and his goodness. And we begin to question his love and his sovereign plan. We all do it. Just how much do we do it? The condition of our submission to the will of God is best revealed by the contents of our mind. So if you want to really evaluate your submission to God, just begin to be, take note of the way you think. When things, I mean, things are small. It's like I was waiting for that parking place and that guy got it, right? I'm not in control. The light turned too quick, right? I'm not in control. The line's too long at Walmart. Well, I, I complain about that one too, but I'm not in control, right? It, it's, it's, it's terrible, all the things that we say to ourselves in our head when things don't go the way that we think they should go. And so when it's big things, we know what the truth is. We're questioning God. We're questioning him over and over again. J.I. Packer talks about what comes to our mind when we think about God is so important. He says this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you see God as a good and loving father? Back when I was probably eight, nine years old, we had a family trip planned to Candom Park in Huntington, West Virginia, right? Loved this place as a kid, man. It was like so exciting. The haunted house was so stellar. The, the rides, it was just the perfect little place for our, us West Virginians to go so we don't have to travel to Ohio or some distant place to go to a real amusement park. But this was a great place. And we had a family trip planned there. And we were all anticipating it. It had been on the calendar for a long time. But the morning that we were getting ready to leave, my dad got a phone call, and it was his work, DuPont. And he said, hey, we need you to come in for overtime today. My dad never turned down overtime, ever turned down overtime. He always took the opportunity to take it. 
And he took it, and he hung down the phone, the phone, and he looked at us, and he said, I know how disappointed you are, but I'm going to make it up to you. I promise you, we'll go at another point. Was I disappointed? Of course I was. But here's the thing. I trusted my dad. I trusted that he was doing what was best for our family, that he needed to work and provide and do those things, and his priority was more important than my fun at the moment. And I trusted the fact that he said, we're going to go later, and we did. We went later because I trusted him. Here's the thing. If you don't trust your dad, you don't trust your heavenly father, then you are going to constantly question and you're going to live in the spirit of disappointment. What is your image of God? Do you rest in your identity in Christ, who he declared you to be, his child, his sons and his daughters? Can you rest in the fact that your heavenly father is so much better than my dad, as great as my dad is, and that he wants what's best for me? But ultimately, he wants what's best for his glory. And in the meantime, it may not look like the track there is very much in my favor, right? That's where we trust. God, do you care? We say that. And we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Yes, God, you care. You proved that you care when Jesus went to the cross so I could have peace with you. You made peace with me. You didn't have to do that. You sent Jesus and we question, God, are you really in control? And we question his holiness. And he is in control. And I think I need to say this because it, it's so true, especially in cultures and societies today that we see it. And it's probably been true since the history of the world. Some of you have an awful view of your earthly father. And that oftentimes translates into your view of your heavenly father. Maybe you were abused, traumatized, criticized, beat up all the time. And you look at God as father, and you're like, how can I accept you as father? My own father was terrible. God wants to wash over you truth from Scripture. He wants to show you that he's a father who loves you more than you can ever imagine. And the cross is proof of that. But some of you are going to have to preach that extra hard to yourself. You're going to have to get with other people who are similar struggles that you are and, and discuss it and talk about it and pray about it and cry about it because it's tough for you. But God is a good father and he loves you. We're going to pause right here in the message and we're going to take communion. Here's what I want to do before you stir around and find your cop. I want you to talk to God, plain and simple. Just take this time to say, God, I need to see you more clearly. I need to have a bigger image of you, a bigger view of you. I need help. I need your grace to help me with these thoughts that rattle around in my head. I, and admit to God, I am a control freak. When things don't go my way, I'm always questioning your plan. And I want to love you more. I want more of your grace in my life. So before you fool around with your cup and open it or anything like that, let's just take some, a moment just to close your eyes, and you, you, talk to God.
Jesus went to the cross, he followed the will of the Father. And his body was broken so that he could have a relationship with us. That God went to that extent so that he could have you as his child. Is there anything else that he could ever hold back from you if he gave Jesus for you? So as we take the bread, Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. Not for your neighbor and your friend. He said, for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Thank him for the gift of the cross. When Jesus that we're looking at here in the Gospel of John, historical Jesus, a Jesus that literally walked this earth, went to a Roman cross and was died, died a terrible, horrible death. He gave his blood so that we can have peace with God, our Father. So as we take this, do this in remembrance of him. Father God, I thank you for this moment we can pause. And just thank you for being a good, loving father. And your actions to us show that to the extent you went so that we could have peace with you. God, we thank you so much for the gift of the cross. God, for that person here who's battling with so many things right now, grief, anger, fear, depression, anxieties. God, I pray in their struggle, they will run to the cross. Help them to control their mind, to fight the battle in their mind. And remember what you said about that. There's nothing can separate us from your love. And we thank you for that, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is following his Father's will. He's on his father's divine timetable when the father says go he goes when the father says wait he waits he only does what he sees the father doing and back to verse five for not only not even his own brothers believed they knew that jesus could do amazing amazing miracles look at verse three he says leave here and go to judea that your disciples also there may see the works that you're doing so they know that Jesus can do amazing things. Some of you know the truth. But there's a difference between knowing the truth and believing the truth. They knew. They grew up with Jesus. They were with him for 30 years. Never saw him sin one time. Yet they could not, in spite of all these remarkable things, they could not accept that he was who he said he was. They could not believe, meaning they could not have faith in Jesus. In fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry, in Mark chapter 3, they actually think he's crazy. They say he's, he's out of his mind. Get him. Take him home by force. This guy's crazy because he's claiming to be God. But I can't help to think that the brothers are motivated a great deal by fear. I mean, think about it. Your, your flesh and blood begins to claim that he's God. No matter how perfect the person has been, 
you would forget a lot of those things because this claim is so big and it's so bold and it, it's, it's just blasphemy to, to the nation of Israel if Jesus wasn't who he said he was. In their mind, this is, this is insane. He's out of his mind. And so they tell him, go up to the crowds. They're, they're fearful. They're afraid of the Jews. Jesus is making these claims. They want Jesus to go and they want him to prove who he was or just be quiet. All right? It's given the family a bad name. It's making them look bad. It, they're under this pressure from society. I'm sure they're getting ridiculed. Hey, what's your brother? What's, what's going on over there with him, right? He's crazy, isn't he? And they're scratching their head like, oh, what do I say here? And so they begin to operate out of fear. And Jesus, look what he says. He says, my time has not yet come. Your time's always here. He's saying, you can go anytime you want. Nobody's after you. The only reason that you're under pressure is because of me. But they're not going to kill you. You're not a wanted man. You're not a targets. You go. My time has not come. And in verse 7, Jesus continues. He's saying this. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So remember this. This is important because as you look at this, and you'll see if you've read ahead in the passage, Jesus goes. What's Jesus doing here, right? Did he just tell them he's not going, and then he goes? Well, when families went to these festivals and these feasts in Jerusalem, the entire family went. And when I say entire families, we're talking about big, huge groups of people. In fact, remember this. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old and he went to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem and his family literally were one full day back from the journey before they realized 12-year-old Jesus was missing. And in, in verse 44 of chapter 2 of Luke, it says they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. So all these people, this huge group of people, would go together. But Jesus is saying he's not going to travel up with them. Because it would be so easy to identify who Jesus' family is. There's the house of Joseph. There they are, all right? It's easy to spot them. It's not Jesus' time. And so he refuses to go up, verse 7, and he says, the world can't hate you. Here's why they're after me, guys, right? You're trying to fit right in out of fear. I'm exposing their sin. I'm testifying about the world, about the people, about this system, that it's evil and they're sinful, and there's no threat to you. The threat is on me. Your only crime is just being related to me. So Jesus' brothers, they belong to the world. What does that mean? They're not believers, so they fit in. They're part of the system there that's after Jesus. But Jesus wasn't afraid of being rejected. Jesus wasn't afraid of the people. He constantly spoke truth. He constantly confronted the religious leaders of the day. But he followed God's lead in his timetable what God wanted to do. He knew the Father. And if you struggle with the fear of people, the antidote to that is to seek grace to see God more clearly. Just think about it, just really practically. If you see God for who he is in his divine timetable, what he's doing is greater than this moment right here that I'm having with my coworker or my friend, that God's in control of it all, then all of a sudden I'm not as fearful of this person as I was before. And as I grow in my trust of the sovereignty of God, I begin to 
fear other people less and less. Now, some of you may not have much of a problem with fear of people, but many of you know what I'm talking about exactly. You're terrified of people. You're terrified of being mocked or ridiculed like Jesus' brothers, and you're like, I, you know, I just don't want to be in the, in the center there of the spotlight. I'm, I'm, I don't like people to confront me. Well, you cannot live for Christ without some degree of confrontation because you can't point somebody to their need for salvation unless you show them that they're a sinner. And nobody likes to hear they're a sinner, right? Even those who sin will try to make excuses, obvious sins, and they try to make excuses. This was the problem. That was the problem. They were the problem, not me. I couldn't be me the problem. And we're good at spotting sin in every other person, right? But we don't see it in ourselves. And so we fear people. But God wants to change that. God wants to change your relationship with people. Hear this. Hear this. If you're going to follow the timetable of God, if you're going to follow his sovereign will, then you have to change your relationship with people. I love this quote by a guy named Ed Welch, and this says it so well. He says, our problem is that we need people for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. The task God sets for us is to need them less and love them more. I love that. I love that. Because when we need people, it's all about us being at the center. But when we love people, it's about God and his glory. We're able to truly love people, to give the way God gives, expecting nothing in return. And therefore, it's not a, a relationship that regards us to, to use them, results in us using them and trying to manipulate people to get what we need from them. Does that make sense? And so we are able to love people for who they are for God's glory. So if you fear people, look to God. Ask for the grace of God to give you the strength to see him as he is. So the person who fears God, they will fear nothing else. Look at verse 9. After saying this, he remains in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And like I said, in verse 8, he said, I'm not going. But some manuscripts will say, I'm not going yet. Maybe that's the translation of your Bible. But either way, it doesn't matter. Jesus is, is saying, I'm not going with you guys. I'm not going with this group. I'm not going with the family caravan, all right? I'm going up privately. You guys go ahead. They know Jesus. I mean, he's a, he's, he keeps the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. He never broke the law. So if the law required him to go to Jerusalem for the feast, he's going to the feast. They didn't doubt that. But he says, I'm not going with you. And so Jesus went in private, not with the public group. Because why? Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? They'd had enough. They'd had enough. Somebody claiming to be God was worthy of death. And so they didn't know where to look for him. They looked for him probably among the family and friend group. He's not there. But look what happens. The buzz about Jesus, the talk about Jesus, it's the talk of Jerusalem. And there was much, verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others says, no, he is leading the people astray. So the crowds, you're curious, some are spe uh, skeptical, some think he's a good person, others think he's just a con artist. And so whatever they think, they're talking about it. But look what it says in verse 13. But they don't do it out in the open. They don't have debates like they would have 
at that time with rabbis and people of, 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 of importance in the community. They do it privately because why? They fear the Jews. And when John uses, remember the Jews, he's using the religious establishment of the day. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the Jews were against Jesus, and the people feared the leadership. And so God commands us, don't live by fear. Live by faith in the Son of God. It's so easy to allow fear to just to debilitate us. It's so easy to take our eyes off God, His sovereignty, and fall into self-preservation mode. And, and it's not a criticism because we all struggle with it. But if you're facing something serious in your life, self-preservation comes very, very naturally through the flesh, right? I want to survive. I don't want to leave. I don't want to just, you know, die. I don't want these bad things to happen. I've got kids. I've got a wife. I've got a, a husband. I've got a family. And we begin to turn inward. And we begin to say, God, you're not trustworthy. God... Apparently, you know, somewhere in this picture, like, I was left out because surely it would be the best thing for me for this to happen. And we begin to put ourselves in the place of God and begin to think that God is not doing what he says he should do. And so when we don't follow what Scripture says, which is do not fear, it means that we allow anxiety and fretfulness to rule our lives. And they take root in our hearts. And we begin to live out of panic instead of out of faith. And as Christians, we can't be people of panic. Yes, we can have concerns, grave concerns. It's not taking light or we're not denying reality at all. We just know that God is sovereign. And, the, and three days later, Jesus rose again. And so while it may look horrible and bleak at this moment, we trust God. We trust God. And to trust God, plain and simple, you've got to know God. You've got to spend time with him. You have to be with your father. He made a way through Jesus and the cross to have peace with him. From the original, before sin, right? Before sin in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They were in communion with the father. That was broken by sin. Jesus has restored that. And now you're his child and we have the ability, not fully face-to-face -face, obviously with God, but we have the ability commune with our Heavenly Father and to know our Heavenly Father. And as we know Him and learn more of Him, we grow in our trust in Him. And we fear less and we trust more. And sometimes God will never come through the way you expect in this lifetime. But here's the thing. If we believe, we know that this life is just a fraction of time compared to the eternity that we will spend with God. It's not my words. Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to take you and be with you forever. So while we still struggle, we rest. We, we preach it to ourselves that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's our head application. Nothing. Romans 8. Read Romans 8 today. If you're struggling, read the whole chapter 8 of Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus. God is for you. He's not against you, regardless of what you feel at this moment. And in your heart, the only way you can get victory over fear is to grow in your view of God. 
daily seek grace to see God more clearly. So instead of just opening your Bible, checking it off your list that I read it, take the time to really wrestle your mind to a place where you say, God, I want to know you. I want to sit in your presence. I want to know you, Father. I want to take the words that you just showed me off the page and make those real and true in my life. And it doesn't come easy for pastors and elders and deacons and leaders. It's a struggle for all of us. But we pray and we fight the battle. And then, just practically in our hands, fear of people. If, if you're really struggling with fear of people, I encourage you to ask God specifically. Put somebody on your mind. God, I pray for John. Like, I need to, God, I need to speak up for you in front of him. And I need that. I need your, your grace to do that because I don't want to do that. I want to blend in with him. I want to be like him. I want to just get along and be accepted. Yes, teenagers, adults still want to be accepted, okay? So we pray and we put that battle before God and let the Holy Spirit through his word give us strength to make the difference that he's called us to make. Don't compromise. Walk how Jesus walked. And Jesus walked by faith, not by fear. I only, see what I, I only do what I see the Father doing. I walk by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And how do I know that? He gave Jesus for me. Let's pray. God, it's so easy to stand up here and give a talk on faith and fear. But it's so much different when we're in the trenches living this out. And God, I pray just for each person here who's in the middle of the battle with grief, fear, anxiety, whatever struggle that they have going on that's causing them not to have joy and peace with you that they should be experiencing, God. I pray right now they will admit that you're sovereign and they are not. That your way is better and you're smarter. You're God of the universe. You're the great I am. And like Jesus, we submit to your timetable. And God, I pray that you'll help us to walk in that truth, live in that truth, preach that again and again and again into our heads. God, help us not just put on a smile and say everything's okay, God, but help us to surround ourselves with other believers who are going to be in the foxhole with us, fighting with us. God, I pray for that person who feels extremely isolated. I pray you'll bring people into their life. Even today, as we leave this place in a minute, God, allow people to step into their life and, and just reach to them and follow the Holy Spirit's guidance to help encourage them through this difficult time they're dealing with. We love you and we thank you that resurrection is coming, even as we mourn and grieve death today. In Jesus' name.